You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted, your guide to quick and easy art history. We're cutting through all that art world jargon that doesn't make sense to anyone because art is for everyone. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. Now, this season, every episode, we're going to focus on a different medium. And today, we're looking at clay. In 1974, some farmers began digging a well. Before they struck water, they stumbled upon an amazing archaeological and artistic treasure, the Terracotta Army. Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China, wanted an army to protect him in the afterlife. Artists constructed an estimated 8,000 life-size terracotta statues of soldiers, horses, chariots, and bronze weapons— But what good is an army to protect you if you're bored for eternity? So the burial complex also includes musicians and acrobats to entertain Qin Shi Huang. He seems to have replicated the whole political structure, bringing his entire empire with him into the afterlife. These figures were created more than 2,000 years ago, and they show incredible detail. While the variety of figures and unique faces has led to speculation that there may have been portraits of specific individuals, experts say that seems unlikely. The production of so many statues was incredibly labor-intensive, but it appears to have been the result of a sort of assembly line process. Artisans would construct individual parts from a few molds, and then they would mix and match pieces to create unique combinations. When you think about it, it's some of the earliest evidence of modular design. While today we see images of dusty terracotta in familiar earth tones, they were actually brightly painted. After firing the terracotta clay, artists covered the warrior statues in lacquer, then bright-colored pigments to indicate their rank within the emperor's army. Perhaps the most effective bit to protect the late emperor, though, was the poisonous moat of liquid mercury in the complex. Ironically, liquid mercury was thought to be an elixir of life, and Qin Shi Huang was searching for immortality. While archaeologists have been excavating the site in central China since its discovery in 1974, they still have yet to break the seal on Qin Shi Huang's actual tomb. Han Dynasty historian Sima Quan 
described palaces and scenic towers for a hundred officials, as well as many rare artifacts and treasures. The Yangtze and Yellow Rivers are simulated using liquid mercury and the ceiling was decorated with constellations. From here, Qin Shi Huang could continue to rule over his empire, even in the afterlife. I imagine it all must have been quite breathtaking. It's an amazing technical and artistic feat to have created so many thousands of unique, individualized, and life-sized statues. I always thought Henry Ford innovated with the assembly line, but in China they were doing it 2,000 years ago. And while that may seem ancient, clay production goes back even further. The oldest bits of pottery were discovered in a cave in South China. Scientists studying these fragments have dated them saying they are 20,000 years old. That would mean that prehistoric people in China were making pottery while they were still nomadic hunter-gatherers. So I guess pottery is older than civilization itself. But after the break, I'm going to share my conversations with some of the folks from Amico Clays who explained to me a little bit more of our contemporary practices producing clay, how it gets from the ground to our studios, and tips to make the most of the medium. Now, today, because I know just a tiny bit about a lot of things, I want to talk to someone who actually knows what's going on with clay. I've got here Greg Vogel, the clay division supervisor from Amico Clay. Uh, Thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for having me. So I know, obviously, clay comes from the ground, but beyond that, I have no idea what I'm dealing with there. Can you just give me the quick overview of like, how does clay get from the ground to my classroom? Okay, uh, basically what they do is, we have several different sites and they mine it, you know, just like you would mine anything else, you know. And then it goes through a grinder. And then there were different grinds for different type of clays and glazes. Um, a glaze would take a much finer grind than clay will. Once they grind it, we get two types of clay. One is bagged clay. They come in 50-pound bags. Most of what we do, though, comes air-floated. It comes in tanker trucks, and they carry about 50,000 pounds of material. Um, and we have a silo system uh, that holds anywhere from 120,000 pounds in some of the smaller silos to almost 400 pounds in the, lar- in the two largest silos. So, comes here, we have a panel which is kind of like a large computer which has all the formulas in it and we can do adjustments on that based on, you know, what's going on and, you know, what we're trying to achieve. So, they program the um, uh, formula in there and it pulls out of the silos anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of the different clays we're running in that particular batch. Um, We supplement that with hand-added clay, okay? So that goes onto a scale. We run 10,000 pound batches, goes into a blender, it blends at a very high speed for about three minutes, and then we convey it over to our mill, and that takes about 10 minutes. Once it's in the mill, it goes through a rotary valve, which is rotating all the time, allowing a certain amount of powder coming down into the actual mill part, and then from there, water is added. 
So then it goes through, uh, we call them knives. They're kind of like, they're almost shaped like sails, but they're very, very sharp. And then they're continually moving round and round and they grind the clay as they go through. And then it goes through some shredders, which take some of the air out of the clay. And then it goes into a de-airing chamber. Once it's in the de-airing chamber, a PSI is put onto it to remove more air out of the clay. And then it comes out and we cut it into 25 pound blocks or in some cases 10 pound blocks and wrap it up, put it in a box, put a label on it and ship it out to you guys. So if I'm understanding this correctly, you you dig up the clay, right? Presumably it's probably a little bit wet while it's in the ground. But then as you talk about chopping it up, whenever I chop up clay, like I, I'm getting clay stuck to my materials. Are you drying it out and grinding it up or? When they mine it, they dry it. Okay. It goes through okay. kind of like a drying process and then they, you know, then they mill it. You know, they grind it up. Yeah. I'm also using a mill grinding it up, but that's where we're adding the water to it. Okay, so it's dug out of the ground, it's dried out, so it, it's like bone dry, chopped up into a dust, right? They filter it, and then it's transported, and then it's rehydrated. Yes. So they add water again, mix it up, and then it goes through like that de-airing process that you talked about. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, and then after that, it's bagged, boxed, and shipped off to the store. Yep. And cut, bag, box, you know, um, and that sort of thing, yeah. Thank you very much for taking the time, Greg Vogel uh, from Amico Clays. I really appreciate your explaining how it gets from the ground to my class. You're very welcome. So now that we know a little bit about how clay is made and processed and how it gets to our classroom, I want to talk a little bit about what do we do with the clay once it is in our classroom? And so to get a little bit of advice on that, I have Kathy Skaggs, a, a teacher with years of experience and now working with Amico. Um, thank you for joining me. I'm so glad to be here, Kyle. So clay gets into my classroom. I I tell my students, you know, we're going to do, let's say, a pinch pot. We're going to make a cup or a bowl. One of the first questions I get from kids, can I drink from the cup that I make? Absolutely. However, you can't drink from it right after you've made it. It has to go in the kiln, be heated up, come back out, be painted with glaze, which is really kind of a glass-like material that you paint it on. You put it in the kiln from the magic of the heat. It comes back out. It's glassy, it's shiny, and you can absolutely drink out of it or eat off of it if it's a plate. Okay. And it, just for my clarifications, are all glazes okay for us to eat and drink off of? Now, almost all glazes are good to drink out of. It's very difficult to get a glaze that's toxic anymore, that okay. has any kind of a something bad in it for you. So all the Amico glazes that you're going to use in your classroom are going to be perfectly good to use after they're fired. Okay. So as long as we thoroughly glaze it, it's two or three coats of glaze, right? Make sure we right. don't miss any spots. It's all covered, it's all sealed. It becomes waterproof, it's no longer porous. Um, now, I guess before we even get to that though, let's talk about hand building. If I'm telling my students to, 
to make something out of clay. We're using some additive methods. How do we attach pieces? Because I, ha I have so many people, their first clay piece, they stick two chunks of clay together, it looks like it's good, and then it dries out and it just falls apart. Yes, and one of the things that is tricky about clay is when you get it out of the bag, clay is kind of sticky, and when you press the two pieces together, it kind of tricks you. It looks like it's gonna stick together, but oh no, later on, it'll just come apart. So it is important every time you add a piece to scratch it up and then attach it very well so that they don't come out later. Especially if you have a big piece and a little piece, those are very important to make sure that you've got, they're well attached like a handle on a cup. Yeah, so if I'm thinking of it correctly, the way that I've always explained it to my kids is, Scratching creates loose edges that get tangled like Velcro, right? Slip is like a glue. It's really soft and sticky and it facilitates those things getting connected or joined. And then that final step of smoothing, that's where those two pieces become one. They become unified. Am I right in that? Because if I'm being 100% honest, I somehow made it through college without ever taking a ceramics course. Yes, uh, you're exactly right. And it's especially the scoring and the roughing up of the surface that really bonds those two together. Uh, and it's important that kids know what slip really is. Slip is just uh, some of the clay dissolved into water. And that is basically, like you said, the glue. It only takes a little bit. Um, so it's not too slippery, but that's the glue that basically attaches it together. So if I'm thinking practical advice, we've always got water dishes out at the table, right? Would it be smart to put just a tiny little chunk of clay into the water dish to make our own slip? Or do we need to get slip made another way at another time? Wow, that's a really good question. You can use water as slip or, you know, to bond the clay together. But the best way to make slip is to take your clay and uh, let it get very, very hard, completely dried out, and then break it up and put it in a cup and just cover it with a little bit of water. When you do that, it will turn like very smooth, like a milkshake, and you can add a little bit more water so you can paint it on, but that makes the very best slip. Interesting, so I've never done that. So I've always thought like once the clay dries out, I gotta just throw it away and buy a new box, but you're saying, I can rehydrate the clay. Oh yes, the water, the 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 uh, the thing with, that's interesting with clay is how the water is inside the clay, and that's why it's very important that you keep it bagged while you're working on it because you want to keep that water in the clay and keep it where you can work with it, and then that's why when you leave it out it gets what's called bone dry, very dry, but you have to be very careful because if you're gonna break a piece of pottery, that's when it's gonna break. So once something is totally dry before you put it in the kiln, it's very fragile. Yeah, I always tell my I always tell my kids um, once when it's sitting out on the shelf drying, don't even look at it because it will break from just the force of you looking at it the wrong <laughs> way. Boy, uh, true. On, on the topic of things breaking, though, I have heard and read different things about why pieces blow up in the kiln. Can you tell me 
what makes things blow up and how do I prevent it? After blowing up a lot of things in the kiln and trying to resolve this myself, I can tell you exactly why things blow up in the kiln. And there is only two reasons, and it has to do with whoever's making the pottery before it goes in the kiln. One way that it'll blow up is any air that's trapped inside. So if you think of it like an egg and you've made a clay egg and it has space inside it and you leave that air trapped and you don't put a little bitty hole for the hair to escape and you make this egg and you put it in the kiln, the air inside the egg will expand while the clay contracts. Boom, egg gone. So any trapped air, anything that you think where you've trapped air, you just put a little pinhole in it. Just a little bitty needle hole is all you need. That's one reason. The second reason is trapped moisture. The same thing is true. If you put, hurry up and put your piece in the kiln before it's dry, completely dry, and there's a little droplet of water inside that clay, you can't even see the clay, the water turns to steam and expands, the clay contracts, boom, project gone. So if you let things totally dry out and, and completely, and if you poke holes anywhere you've trapped air, you've solved your explosion problem completely. Okay, so on the topic of trapped air though, am I worried about like tiny microscopic bits of air that might be embedded in the clay? Or are we talking about just a hollow cavity, like you said, an egg, or I'm thinking of my annual maraca project. I need to poke a hole if I've got like a hollowed out vessel, but I don't have to worry about like if I've got a millimeter of air embedded in the wall of a clay piece, do I? No, you do not. It's mostly the larger cavities, or sometimes if I'll build a sculpture with students and the clay is really thick in parts, Mm -hmm. Say if they're building a giraffe or an animal and the clay is kind of thick, I'll turn it upside down where people can't see it and I'll poke lots of holes where the clay is thick, just in case. But really, you don't need to worry about really small, small areas and pockets of where you might have trapped it. You'll usually be okay. Love it. Any other tips or tricks you would give aspiring artists? How can we make the most of our clay? I think the biggest thing with students is when you finish a piece, you want to have it back and ready to glaze immediately. But I think you have to understand that the clay has to dry and you have to be kind of patient and then it's got to go in the kiln. And sometimes it can be in the kiln for six to 12 hours, a long time. And then it comes out and it's rock hard. You'll never break it that's when you apply the glaze and then it goes back in the kiln and then it comes out shiny. So those many steps you have to go through is you have to have a little patience. Yeah, the patience is key because I, <laughs> like you say, people always want it back the next day. And I always tell my, my students, you know, I got to let it dry out for a few days and then I ramp up I keep it at like 180 for eight hours before I bring it up to temperature, you know, just to do that drying cycle because I don't want it to blow up. Um, so it's always like a week between sculpting and glazing in my classroom at least. Right. But yeah, I guess patience is the key. And 
I would encourage any listeners who want to learn more about clay and ways of working with it, check out the Amico website. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to, um, before we started recording, I was talking about, I learned something new just looking at your website. You have a fantastic video. I never would have thought to cut up a, a styrofoam stamp to essentially stamp glazes onto a ceramic piece. There's that and all sorts of other brilliant tips and tricks on the Amical website. And once again, thank you very much, Kathy Skaggs, clay expert, coming to join me on the podcast. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Thank you. ArtSmart is produced, recorded, and edited by me, Kyle Wood. Special thanks this week to Mike Vogel and Kathy Skaggs from Amico Clays. The background music you've been enjoying throughout this episode was created by Less FM, Coma Media, and Music Unlimited. And now that we know a bit about clay, tune in next week to learn about glazes. ArtSmart is an airwave media podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to learn more, check out my other podcast, Who Arted, or go to the website artsmartpodcast.com for more free resources.